This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Yes! Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson and their keeper, Pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me for another summer series episode of the podcast, my co-host, the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Com. Hello, Elon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I wish we had some pre-game show introductions as we've been seeing all throughout the playoffs. I think if we could have a guest announcer, Elon, to introduce us, I think I would choose Alex Trebek, and I think you would choose Jeff Probst. Okay. No one knows what you're talking about. I guess it was we were talking before we went on the air about the Vegas pregame show. Yeah, we should have a little bit of like a knight fighting against a capital. What was it? Like just some like soldier or something from, from Washington. I don't know. They had a fun show to start the game one and game two. Game three yesterday, Washington versus Vegas. Shea Theodore, what was he doing? He totally blew that play. But whatever. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to look way, way into the future because the people listening to this episode right now are the hardcore fantasy hockey nerds that are already focused on winning their pools next year. And Brian, we've got a fun topic for today. We're going to look at all of the players who for the first time joined the 70 point club. So any player who got to 70 points for his first time last season, we're going to go through each one and discuss if we think that player is going to stay in the 70 point club for the next few years, or if it was a one-time thing, don't expect it to happen again. So hopefully we'll have a couple of debates. We'll see what happens. Thanks everyone for joining us in the chat room. We'll be very curious to hear from you if you agree with our assessments. Before we get into all of that, let's of course mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. Very proudly presented by the best fantasy hockey website out there. They're having articles all throughout the playoffs, all throughout the offseason, all throughout the season. Just new content every day at Dauber Hockey. Then you've got all the tools over at Frozen Tools, the newly revamped and newly named. It's got a lot of very useful stuff there. Obviously during the season you got your starting goalies, but a lot of cool stuff that we use to generate our analyses during the summer all of their fancy advanced stats so we're going to get to all of that using dubberhockey.com so yeah it's a great site check it out brian so i'm going to start in the obvious place because it's topical we had two players on the vegas golden knights who joined the 70 point club in jonathan marshall and william carlson riley smith probably would have been there but he had some injury trouble at the end but yes we have two new members from vegas and we've already talked about these guys so much all throughout the actual playoffs just because we've been talking about how they've been doing and even during the season wringing our our hands and like pulling our hair out trying to decide if they're going to be able to keep it up or not i know william carlson we thought there's no chance he's going to be able to keep up his amazing shooting percentage all season long but hey 
He did just fine. 40 goals, ended up with 78 points in 82 games. And Jonathan Marshall had 75 points in 77 games. So not only did both of them join the 70-point club, they both pretty much crushed it. They were both closer to 80-point players than 70-point players. So now let's take a look into next year and the future. I guess we don't need to go too long on them since we've talked about them so much on previous shows. But what do you think about these two Vegas guys and their chances to be perennial 70-point-plus guys going forward? Well, I, I think uh, you, you said that we don't need to go too deep on them, but I think a lot of our discussions on them have just been Jonathan Marcheseau is really good. So, you know, he he's earned these 70 points. And then William Carlson, yeah, high shooting percentage, so maybe he hasn't earned. Let, let's actually go a little deeper for the first time on both these guys. So I'm Jonathan Marcheseau. Let's do that. <laughs> That's a good plan. <laughs> Why did you for interrupt the first, me? For the first time. Let's dig into these players. Jonathan Marsh. So we've always been saying he's a superstar. He's great. I'm so confident you're going to say that he's going to be a perennial 70 plus point guy. William Carlson's the interesting one. You were really strongly saying that you didn't think he'll even hit 20 goals. You said it would be tough for him to hit 20 goals next year. And obviously that would probably keep him out of 70 points. But then near the end of the season, you started to change your tune. And then during the playoffs. So I'm very curious to see where you're going to land on him. Okay. Well, if you stop talking, you'd find out your curiosity would be abated and sated. So let's begin with Jonathan Marcheseau, who added 26 more points in 2017-18 compared to his 2016-17 performance and in the same number of games played. So where did these 26 extra points come from? Uh, It wasn't goals. He had 27 this year, which is actually a relief because a 30 he'd scored in 16-17 came with a high individual shooting percentage attached to them. And with close goal scoring numbers, of course, we can also rule out shots on goal having been a big help to Marcheseau in this 26-point improvement. Marcheseau did have 70 more shots this past year, but the more reasonable shooting percentage helped level out their effectiveness And uh, Marcia's extra points also did not come on the power play with a slight downtick in power play time this year compared to the year before. Marcia still popped 17 power play points, which is just one less than the 18 power play points Marcia had the season prior. So that leaves one category where Jonathan Marcia made up the entire difference between this current season and the one before it, and that is even strength assists. Jonathan Marceau jumped from 21 to 48 five-on-five assists. And, of course, that entire 27 assist difference came by virtue of even strength work. 27 is also the number of Marceau's even strength assists that registered as primaries. He had 38 total. So that takes out some doubt, 27 of 38 being primaries, that Marceau was just finding himself in the right place at the right times. Uh, But the one place where you might want to retain doubt in his ability to continue producing is in his on-ice shooting percentage, which was up above 10.5% last year. And that means uh, Marcheseau's on-ice shooting percentage is pretty likely to regress next season. Now, we all know why that on-ice shooting percentage was inflated uh, because of the person whose goals he was assisting on most. And Elon, you know who that was. I'm going to say Shea Theodore. No, I'm kidding. Of course, William Carlson. Uh. Why even? You're just getting in the way of my flow. William Carlson was scoring the goals that Marcheseau was picking up assists on. Marcheseau had 17 apples on William Carlson's guavas. Next most was eight apples on Riley Smith's guavas, grapes. Trying to think of another fruit to go with like the G for goals. Anyway, uh, aside from Smith and and, uh, Carlson, Marcheseau didn't assist more than two times for any other golden night. And that conveniently brings us 
to Marshall's teammate, who also scored 70 points for the first time. Let's talk about William Carlson, because if his goal production doesn't keep up, that is going to make 70 points harder for Marcheseau to keep up. Let's look at Carlson. Uh, Carlson scored 60 points for the first time ever, not just 70 points. Carlson also scored 50 points for the first time ever, 40 points, 30 points, 26 points for the first time in his career for William Carlson. He more than tripled his previous career high of 25 points, nearly quintupled his previous career high of nine goals. And this, for William Carlson, obviously came more out of the blue than for Jonathan Marcheseau, uh, who we'd seen uh, get experience playing 17 minutes on the top line in Florida before this year, whereas William Carlson was coming off a season in which he'd played just 13 and a half minutes per game on the third line in Columbus with guys like Josh Anderson uh, pre Anything pre fantasy relevant, Josh Anderson, Matt Calvert, Scott Hartnell, and zero power play role. And incredibly, uh, William Carlson's last year in Columbus, that was actually a downgrade. Like he was demoted in terms of deployment from the year before in 2015 16, when Carlson had played 14 and a half minutes per game with Matt Calvert and Nick Foligno at his sides. Uh, but anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that this was the first season that William Carlson ever really had an opportunity to show what he's got, to strut his stuff. And uh, there's no denying he took full advantage. Of course, we've gone on and on about one of the reasons he was able to take advantage, which was his high shooting percentage. Carlson converted on more than 23% of his shots. For anyone who thinks that's no big deal, that maybe he can repeat that, here's a comparison that those familiar with our show uh, will be able to connect the dots and see exactly where I'm going with it very quickly. William Carlson's shooting percentage in 1718. 23.4%. 23.4%. TJ Oshi in 2016 17, 23.1%. So you can see the line I'm trying to draw there in how he said Oshi was due for some huge regression. I can see William Carlson being a candidate for similar next season. The minor consolation for anyone hoping that William Carlson is more for real than TJ Oshi was is that Carlson didn't have as inflated a number at even strength for a shooting percentage as Oshi did, which essentially means that yeah, like Carlson's inflated overall number came more by virtue of high power play shooting percentage, which is a little more reasonable of a way to get those high numbers and uh, at even strength. But in any case, I'm, I'm not saying it's reasonable at all. Uh, it's a pretty darned inflated number. And the thing is that uh, William Carlson is also not a huge shot taker either, averaging barely more than two shots per game So it's not like he's going to make this up in volume unless he changes his game significantly. Uh, It has been nice to see Carlson's shooting percentage stay at 15% in the playoffs so far, but that's as high as I think one could reasonably hope for it to go. So if you just do some basic, like, uh, like we like to do, we like to pretend. So regress William Carlson's shooting percentage to that uh, for last season to 15% and it knocks off 15 goals. And that's enough to not have him back in the 70 point club or not have him ever making it. And why I don't think he's in a prime position to make the 70 point club next year. And like I said, William Carlson, not getting 70 points will affect Jonathan Marcia. So if Carlson isn't converting at such a high percentage, can Marcia make up all of those 26 extra assists again? Uh, it's going to be tougher for Marcia to do that. But he still seems talented enough for it to still be doable, much like Carlson still seems talented enough 
to find a way to still score 25 or 30 goals and have a like a, a higher than average shooting percentage, but still not 23%. Their fates will remain tied, but if we're looking at who's going to need to stir the drink, it's Jonathan Marcheseau who's going to have to be good enough to coax the best performance possible out of William Carlson. I am going to put Marcheseau at just squeaking into the 70-point club next year and Carlson falling short. Wow. Okay. A lot to get to there. You were on quite a run. Okay. Back to, okay. A couple things. Because I think I, I'm going to slightly disagree with you. That's okay. Respectfully, of course. And people listening know that probably you want to go with Brian if you want to get it right. Uh, so first of all, with Marsh. So it was interesting how you brought up the whole thing about how he had mostly primary assists and not secondary assists. So we don't have to worry about him just being in the right place at the right time. I mean, come on. Anyone who's watching any of these Vegas games, they know that Marsh. So is not just in the right place at the right time. He's driving the offense. He's clearly a superstar. And Honestly, like, I just feel like, to me, he's like the biggest no-brainer. I'm, I'm actually surprised if you think he's just going to squeak into the 70-point club, especially since we've seen such an uptick in the number of players that get there. Like, it's not as hard a thing to get to as it used to be. I guess rule changes, maybe the the goalie equipment. Like, there's been a lot of talk about why scoring was so up in the NHL. But I feel like Jonathan Marshall is showing himself to be a star. And, like, in the playoffs, it's just continuing. Like, he's been a point per game there. And I'm curious to know what you think about William Carlson. Like, I know you're saying that his shooting percentage was high in the regular season. And you did say that maybe some of that was on the power play and so maybe that's more sustainable but overall like you're talking about tj oshi and how he wasn't able to keep it up the following year and you think the same is going to happen to william carlson any opinion about like the fact that carlson now also in the playoffs has 15 points in 18 games also at the end of the year i recall you were pointing out that carlson's shooting percentage was starting to come down and he was still getting point after point like all throughout the season you kept saying he's not going to keep this up and he did like, it just seems to me like he's on the top line and on the top power play with the superstar Jonathan Marshall. So, and they're tearing things up. Like, is there um, anything to the fact that they've just continued to do it for so long? And by the way, in the playoffs, William Carlson has only a 14.9 shooting percentage and he's still got 15 points in 18 games. I don't know. Just to me, I just feel like it's just going to be the kind of thing that's going to bite us if we say William Carlson's not going to do it because we said it all year and it bit us. And now, I don't know. I just, I fear that it's going to happen again. Yeah, so like I'm open to that. I I said 15% in the playoffs is nice. And even if you regress the 15%, Willem Carlson falls out of 70-point territory. So uh, like if you're saying, like I understand everything else is going great, 15 points in 18 games, crushing it in the playoffs. I'm not, it's not the question. I didn't say like he's a 60-point player, 55-point player, which I did say for TJ Oshie. Like Oshie, I knocked way back down from, however high he had reached Carlson. I'm not going to, because he's got that top role. He seems to be working really well with Marcia. So, and we know that Vegas seems to be, I mean, if they can play the same brand of hockey next year that they played this year and other teams still haven't quite figured out a way to slow them down. Uh, they have a competitive advantage just that way in creating more high danger chances, more chances off the rush, which I, I think, and I made this point, I think back in February, I, I think that's a big contribution to why they all had a high on ice shooting percentages because they're coming up the ice quickly and, uh, and, and moving the puck. Uh, I, I don't know how many more different ways I can say this. Just moving the puck quickly enough that teams don't really have a chance to get set and defend against them. 
Yeah, so Vegas is one of those teams. They're so tough to pin down. And I'm, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast have heard so many people talk about Vegas for so long. So how about we just move on from them and maybe we could talk about them more going into the season. I'm sure we will going to the next season. I guess one thing that just came to mind right now is I don't know if it's going to help that they, like Shea Theodore is still pretty young. Like he's going to be a year older, more mature like Colin Miller. I wonder if maybe they'll get even more help from their defensemen. Like you said that all of Marshall's assists were basically to his line mates and no one else he assisted on like more than two goals from them so i just fine yeah but i feel like maybe there might be some defensemen who might be able to score some more goals there might be some more people to pass that luck around or not luck around to like skill around to even if let's say william carlson's shooting percentage goes down maybe marshall so finds new people to pass to to score like there are two other players on the ice aside from his two line mates at forward it would be nice if, if more goals could be scored from the blue line that would certainly help him if he's feeding the blue line uh the other thing to check which i can do uh, maybe while you speak next is to see how many of his goals were assisted on by them. Like if the system in, in Vegas is for the defenseman to move the puck to the forwards to score, like we're not going to suddenly see more goals from the point next year. Right. Of course. So yeah, we'll have to see again. Okay. Let's just move on from Vegas because yeah, there's a lot to say about if other teams will finally figure out how to stop this juggernaut of the Vegas Golden Knights. And the Washington did pretty well doing it yesterday, but okay, let's go to, I think the most obvious player that's going to join the 70 point club. I see you put your hand up. One more thing about Vegas. Yeah. Well, I'll just, I, I looked up who assisted on Marcheseau's goals. He only had 15. So there, there weren't a ton, like his bread and butter was setting up William Carlson uh, and all of his goals, like he was assisted by Carlson seven times, Riley Smith six times, Nate Schmidt four times, and then nobody else more than twice. So his he was really concentrated for the players who he scored with at even strength. I think it's been like that all throughout the playoffs too. You're seeing just Marsha So from Riley Smith and William Carlson or some combination of that. Yeah. That's how they're doing it. That's how they made it to the Stanley Cup Finals. Okay, this is the player I think that's the most obvious. I don't know. Actually, there's a couple players who are really obvious. This one, I'll be shocked. I will like just quit my job as co-host of this podcast if you don't think that this next player, the new, like, I think people even would be surprised or maybe not that this was his first time joining the 70 point club, but Nathan McKinnon, Come on, 97 points in 74 games, crushing his previous career high of 63 points, which was in his rookie season. McKinnon burst onto the scene with 63 points in 82 games. I remember going to the next season, everyone was thinking like, the sky's the limit. Like, how high can McKinnon go? Like, of course, that was the year that Colorado had this amazing shooting percentage overall. They had a lot of puck luck. They made it into the playoffs. And then the next couple of seasons were pretty much disasters. McKinnon only had 38 points in 64 games and like 52 points in 72 games. Then going into last year, he fell so far in drafts and he ended up being one of the most viable players in fantasy and going to next year i can't imagine you're going to say like maybe there's a discussion to be had of whether he's going to be an 80 point guy going forward or a 90 point guy considering he had 97 last year but 70 points come on that's a very low bar but the interesting thing is he also brought a friend along just like jonathan marshall so in miko rantanen who had his first 70 plus point season he had 84 points in 81 games so another example of someone crushing the 70 point plateau rantanen had only 38 points in his rookie season jumped up to 84 so McKinnon we could just gush about him and how amazing he is and then I am interested to know if you think that Miko Rantanen will be able like I don't think there's any question that Rantanen's going to stay on the top line and top power player with McKinnon so it's just a matter of if you think his 80 points like 84 points point per game is that something sustainable or do we expect him to fall and if he does fall would it be lower than 70 points okay so let's uh let's get started with McKinnon who had not paced for more than 60 points since his rookie season back in 2013-14. So that's 14, 15, 15, 16, 16, 17. Three seasons in a four-year career, 
in which he had not paced for 60 points. He was stuck in the mid-50s. So how did he get suddenly to becoming a 97-point player? Your first reaction might be, well, uh, Miko Ranton and and Gabriel Landeskog, great line mates for him. That really worked. But it's not like he's had chopped liver for wingers in the past. He actually has been with Landeskog all four years of his career. So those two have been together the whole way through good and bad. And the third piece was always fantastic. In McKinnon's rookie season, third piece was Stasny. Then the next year was O'Reilly. And then the next year was Shane. And then finally, this past year, it was Miko Rantanen. He and McKinnon must have figured something out that McKinnon didn't quite figure out with the other guys who weren't, I guess, Paul Stasny. But can that answer how McKinnon scored more than 40 points above any of the totals he got with those other guys with seasons played with Duchesne and Ryan O'Reilly. There has to be more to it. So we look at the numbers and of course there is Uh, some of it is to McKinnon's credit. Some of it is credit to variance. Let's look at the favors that Nathan McKinnon did for himself first. Uh, Nathan McKinnon put a career high 284 shots on goal and that's an eight game sort of a full season. So prorate that shot pace and he's up to 315 shots if he doesn't miss a game this past year. Obviously, that also gives McKinnon his highest career shot rate, and that's a product of a career-high shot attempt rate. McKinnon was not just setting personal bests to be impressive this year in shot generation. McKinnon was ranked eighth in the entire league in individual shot attempts for 60 minutes amongst players who'd played more than 1,000 minutes, and McKinnon was even better ranked sixth in actual shots for per 60 minutes. So this guy, needless to say, super prolific shooter. Nathan McKinnon also saw more power play time this year than he ever had before, which was a favor, not so much that he did himself, but perhaps done by his coach and then perpetually earned by him. So good on his coach for putting him in that role and good for McKinnon for making the most for it. He actually averaged 40 more seconds of power play time per game than ever before and made the most of it. Huge shot generation numbers continued, carried over from even strength onto the power play. And even just compared to his past seasons, Nathan McKinnon was more involved in putting pucks on net with the man advantage this year than ever before, and much more involved when you compare directly to 2016-2017. This all helped McKinnon to a career high of 32 power play points, which almost doubles his previous career high of 17 power play points. So those are a couple things that we won't attribute to variants, that we will attribute to McKinnon's skill. Uh, favors done for McKinnon, potentially by the hockey gods. He did sort of have a high shooting percentage. Now, 13.7% was his number, which doesn't seem unreasonable for a strong scorer, but that's never quite what McKinnon has been. And for someone with his shot volume, it seems like a high number. If you look at the guys who are actually ahead of him in shots four per 60 minutes, it's a familiar list of players who uh, disappoint, who take a lot of shots and don't cash in. The guys leading the league in that category this year, shots four per 60 minutes at even strength, Brandon Gallagher, Victor Arvidsson, Jeff Skinner, Evander Kane, Tyler Toffoli. So you've got a bunch of names there who, like, you would be just so delighted to see Jeff Skinner or Evander Kane or Brandon Gallagher put up a 14% shooting percentage. So to think that McKinnon can do this every year might be a stretch if he's going to keep taking so many shots. McKinnon himself, just looking at his own career sample, has been a 10% shooter over the course of his career. And even that number is thanks only in part to his first season where he was a 9% shooter and his last season, which I just said, where he was almost a 14% shooter. 
I feel like it's not a bad bet to make that he can keep up, uh, say, around 10% in his shooting percentage, which shouldn't hurt him too much in the big picture if that's the only regression that Nathan McKinnon sees. Uh, But one place where he's due to regress for sure is in his on-ice shooting percentage, which was even higher than Jonathan Marchessault's at 10.75%. So that should regress. Uh, McKinnon's IPP was in the high 70s for the first time ever. Uh, the only thing I'd say to that is maybe he's more of a low 70s guy. Again, both these things are, are like, or not both, his individual shooting percentage and his IPP are small marks on him, small dings, which is just a reason not to be banking on McKinnon to keep pushing and break 110 points next year, rather than to think, uh, like, at least we know that we he didn't fluke his way to a 107-point pace. So 70-point club is super easy to say, like you said, uh, introducing, segueing into this whole conversation. Uh, 100 points, I could see it happening in 82 games for him. Wow. Okay. So yeah, he's going to destroy the 70 point club for sure. Though you bring up some good points about the high percentages. And and I do remember, I think it was like season one of Keeping Carlson, where we were talking about Colorado's amazing season back like four seasons ago or whatever in McKinnon's rookie year. And so these numbers are a bit high, this online shooting percentage. I think it does make sense to assume that things won't be as amazing as they were last year. Like McKinnon is clearly a superstar. He's clearly going to be like a point per game guy. But like you say, like maybe expecting like him to improve on a hundred seven point pace that might be tough i think it is more interesting to have this conversation now about guys like miko ranton which we're about to do also someone like tyson barry who we don't have scheduled because he didn't break the 70 point club yet in his career though he did come close and actually his point pace we mentioned on the patron cast that we did last week was actually the highest point pace for any defenseman in the league he just didn't beat out john carlson because carlson played so many games more than tyson barry due to injury but yeah so like it is interesting to see like colorado we can't expect them to be as good next year like there were all these high on ice percentages and i guess ranton is the one that you've researched and i'm interested to know like, yeah, if, if McKinnon goes down, say, to becoming an 100-point player instead of a 107-point player, maybe even a 95-point player, how badly would that affect someone like Miko Rantanen, who's clearly a really talented guy, but also clearly needs Nathan McKinnon to get these elite numbers? So, yeah, before we get into Rantanen, you mentioned Tyson Berry. And, and the one interesting thing, so when a player has an on-ice shooting percentage, you look for the line mate that was shooting way above expected. And McKinnon didn't have that. Like Landeskog and Rantanen were pretty much in line with what you'd expect. No big differences. So uh, like it, a lot of the difference was in McKinnon himself that inflated his own on ice shooting percentage. Tyson Barry shooting 8% obviously helps, but uh, like it's not so out of the, out of the ordinary for Tyson Barry. Yeah, and it's also important to point out that, like, just like you said about Vegas and William Carlson scoring all those power play goals, I recall, like, Colorado scored so many power play goals. Like, I'm sure Tyson Berry, a lot of his goals are on the power play. I guess you're going to get to that with uh, Rantanen, right? Yeah, so Colorado power play, a a big part of this, and I'm going to get to it in a minute. First, I'm just going to ask the obvious question when we're getting into Rantanen and McKinnon right after going going on about Marcia Stone Carlson. Is Miko Rantanen the William Carlson to Nathan McKinnon's Jonathan Marcheseau. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and just say not really. So I'll I'll burst that bubble. I'll I'll ask that question and then say it's totally irrelevant right away. Um, Rantanen does shoot at about the same rate in terms of shots on gold as William Carlson. They both get about two per game. Uh, But Rantanen's different in that he shot in the 15% range for the second year in a row, which is enough for me to make me think that he's got a shot. Rantanen's got a shot at sustaining that marker once again next year. 
Renton was also a huge beneficiary of that monstrous Colorado power play. They ranked eighth in the league by converting on 21% of their chances. Uh, Renton personally had 12 goals and 23 assists for 35 power play points. The question is, was that Colorado power play kind of a paper tiger? Are they, well, I don't know. Is a paper tiger ever actually ferocious or do they only like appear to be ferocious? Well, I mean, you get a paper cut, but I don't know how much more damage a piece of paper can really do to you aside from that. I guess if you throw it as a paper tiger, if it's like a paper airplane and it hits you in the eye and you're not wearing glasses, I guess maybe that could hurt. But I think generally a paper tiger isn't too scary. So you're saying that the power play wasn't as good as it seemed? I'm 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 saying it might yeah yeah well said thank you for saying it for me because clearly I can't see it myself the reason I think this is because well if we just want to go basic uh Colorado had the second highest power play shooting percentage in the league so of course that's going to help and you could say a really good power play is really effective um a higher shooting percentage is more rightfully earned on the power play than it is at even strength however um over at Corsica uh, Many Elk has this uh, expected goals for stat that we've talked about before on the show. It's where he he combines a, a whole bunch of factors, does some math. I'm obviously simplifying it like crazy, and then decides how many goals a team should have scored. Um, and then you can compare that to how many goals they actually did score. And Colorado had a two and a half goal difference between uh, their goals for per 60 and what their expected goals for per 60 was. So uh, obviously in favor of their goals for per 60. So they were slated to score two and a half goals less per 60, according to Manny's formula over at Corsica. And uh, if you sort by expected goals for per 60 minutes, you'll see that Colorado actually ranked second last in the league in expected goals for per 60 on the power play. So something just doesn't pass the sniff test here that Colorado was actually as good on the power play as they turned out to be. So if you're banking on another 35 power play points from Rico Rantanen, I, uh, I might advise against that. I might advise you to rethink. And this difference, by the way, in expected goals for and actual goals for existed at even strength as well, both for the abs and Rantanen and McKinnon personally. I can't say, you know, like it's a big formula, so I can't point to one specific factor that uh, accounts for the difference between the goals they scored and the goals they were expected to have scored. But if you're looking for a red flag, uh, this is as good as you're going to get outside of their on-ice shooting percentage for why you might see some regression from both of them. Okay, so that's interesting. Like, I almost would want to know if maybe there's something wrong with the stat, right? Because if they had, the like, the lowest, did you say, expected goals for on the power play? Second lowest. Second only, lowest. Uh, only above Buffalo. And yet they were like eighth in the league in power play, actually. That's like a huge yes. difference, right? Like, so I, huge difference. So it's Manny Elk. I feel like we should tweet at him or something and ask, uh, like, what, if he has an explanation for this. Maybe there's something that he needs to tweak in this formula because I, that would be crazy, right? Like, that means what? They had the most amazing luck. Every goalie that they played against on the power play basically fell apart. They were just so afraid of Nathan McKinnon and Tyson Berry and Ranton and Landeskog. He just like had to run away, scared. So uh, remind me after the show, I'm writing a reminder for myself. I will tweet at Manny to ask. Uh, we'll see if we can get an answer from him. He's not, well, I, I hope he'll respond. 
<laughs> okay, and, and of course you can follow us at Keeping Carlson, then we'll retweet the response from Manny if we get it. So that's a lot to say, but that, that, that's very interesting to me. I wonder, I, I don't know, it's just like it's such a big difference that it makes me question the stat, but not to say that I think it's def- definitely wrong, but I think like that's just the kind of thing that makes me a little bit skeptical, but it'll be interesting to dig into that a little more. And with Colorado, I think in general, I am skeptical. Like I feel like with a lot of these players that we're going to talk about, they're clearly good, but the question is, should you draft them, right? Like we all I'll agree that Ranton and McKinnon are going to be great guys to own in fantasy next year, but are they going to be good value in your draft? And to be honest, I don't think so. Like, I feel like it's going to be very surprising for Ranton to be as good or better than he was last year. It was just such a dream season. I had him on my couple team. I picked him up as a free agent in like week two. And I'm sure he was one of the big MVPs, one of the reasons I won my league. And I'll never forget it. Thank you, Miko Rantanen. You're my hero forever. But that being said, I don't think I'm going to draft him next year in like round two or round three. Like I'd like to see a little more. So it's all about value compared to who else you could get in the draft at that time. And I have a feeling other people are going to jump on it, maybe even expecting them to be even better, you know, since they're still young superstars, McKinnon and Ranton. I have a feeling I won't own them. Not to say that I don't think they're going to be awesome, but I, I just have a gut feeling, a hunch that I don't see my myself drafting either of these guys next year because they're going to be so highly valued yeah that's that's going to be the hardest part is mckinnon is going to be like off the charts in in so many rankings as i I don't think i'm going to be alone at all in saying that he's got a great shot at 100 points so he's still young so especially in a keeper league he is going to be incredibly valuable and he's the sort of player that people love to jump on so uh so good luck in getting him at a reasonable price Right. Okay. So, Brian, let's move on. We still have two more teams that have a pair of 70-point guys. Then we have some other, I guess, stragglers, what do you call them? Other people who join the 70-point club. It's pretty exciting to have so many new players hit 70 for the first time. I feel like in previous seasons, we'd have like a couple. I guess we could look at the actual numbers for this, but it seems like we've got a very exciting new list to talk about. So far, I guess, no big surprises with your answers. What did you say with Ranson, by the way? Did you say that you think he will stay in the 70-point club next year, or you don't think so? I think he's going to be hard pressed. Um, like if, if I turn out to be correct about, and just to like also back up a little bit, like this expected goal stat has served us pretty well over the last couple of years. And I do like Manny has posted his entire methodology. You can read all about how it was produced. Like I'm a, I, I'm a believer. I think it's a reasonable metric. I don't think it's so I I'm actually much more concerned. Like if I see this big of a difference, I'm more concerned in the Colorado Avalanche than I am in the validity uh-huh. of the stat. Okay, that's fair. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to track this. Next but week. as for Ranton in himself, like he had, he was still 14 points over 70, right? He still he still had 84 points on the season. So if you bring him down, I don't know, like to 20 points on the power play instead of 35, he's still uh, he'll fall short of 70 if you just do it in that rote way but they'll still come close enough i i tend to think elon the way that you did about carlson with marsh or so if rantanen is at the hip attached at the hip with mckinnon uh at even strength and on the power play it's going to be hard for him not to get 70 yeah i think i'm gonna have you shooting 15 percent yeah, I, I think he'll stay in the club, but also he doesn't shoot that much, so he might not help you in too many other categories. Obviously, Ranson is going to help you in your power play points and your straight-up points. Okay, Brian, before we move forward, I want to take a second to thank a sponsor for this week's episode, which are our friends over at SeatGeek. We were talking at the beginning of the show about the pregame show for Vegas. They put on such a good show for their fans, and you know, I wonder if other sports and other teams in the NHL are going to start paying attention and maybe doing great shows, and our listeners can be the first ones to find out by going to all of these games throughout the summer 
Tour or maybe even already buying your tickets for next season when they come available. And the best place to buy them is definitely with our friends at SeatGeek. It's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event, whether you're searching for a last minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. I really just enjoy taking on my SeatGeek app. If I'm just like taking a break, want to kill some time, browse around what's going on in Toronto. There's always good deals, always interesting to see what's going on. And plus, our listeners can even get a discount on their tickets just because they listen to this show. Yeah, that's why, because SeatGeek really appreciates you listening to our show. They are going to give you a $20 discount, rebate, uh, money back, however you want to call it, on your first SeatGeek purchase. All you need to do is download the app or go to the website, make an account, buy, uh, enter the promo code KEEPING, and then uh, on your first purchase, $20 is going to come right off. Bam. Boom. So I guess the trick is to try to find the cheapest ticket you could find. So it's like a really great percentage discount on that ticket. So let us know how you could game that $20. The most tweet us I keep it calls and let us know. By the way, this $20, you can't get this listening to any other podcast. I've checked, okay? I know Dmitry Filipovich is all like saying you could get $20 off by listening to his podcast and putting in his offer code. I don't think it's true. I wouldn't trust him, okay? Do it with what? Our- <laughs> I, say I, that? I, I can say whatever I want. Have you tried... Uh, no, I have not. It's Nobody not. else should try because you should be using our discount code instead. <laughs> yeah, we don't even get any money for this, by the way. We're just having a good time. Okay, let's move on to the next pair of players on the same team, but not on the same line. So we're we're slowly getting away from this idea of two players who were completely attached at the hip. Now we've got two guys, same team, not on the same line. They were on the same power play, though. We're going to the Islanders. Gotta first mention Matthew Barzel, his rookie season. He's going to win the Calder, no question about it. Amazing year, 85 points in 82 games. And, like, what more can you say? He played on the second line. Like, he was, like, carrying his line. Like, Bovillier and Eberle are decent players. But for sure, like, Barzel was the one that was, like, the guy you wanted to play with. He also got on the top power play very, very quickly. He bumped Eberle from the top power play, and he never got bumped again. We've already talked about how the Islanders have a big free agent in the air in John Tavares, and that's going to make a big change to what's going on, on on that team. So it's hard to really make too much of a projection about Barzel just in terms of... Of like if you're looking at his situation for next year, it's completely up in the air right now. But overall, I feel like it's hard to say that he's not going to be in the 70-point club considering in his rookie season, he hit 85. That must be quite a rare thing for a rookie to do. You don't see rookies being over a point per game like Barzil was too often. Then the other guy on the Islanders who joined the 70-point club for the first time, Josh Bailey, which was something that, like, you know, he's not a rookie. He's been around for a while. His previous career high was 56, which was the year before, also in a year where he finally got to play with John Tavares a lot. Before that, his career high was 41. So it was just recently, in the past couple of years, that Josh Bailey has come onto the scene. And last year, he had that amazing run, though I do recall him slowing down a lot at the end of the year. And obviously, if John Tavares is gone, I guess you could say Bailey maybe plays with Barzil, and then he keeps it up. So, okay, what do you think about these Islanders guys? Is it another case of obvious for the first one, not even worth discussing too much. And then Josh Bailey's the one who, I feel like he's the one that's our first, like hard to imagine he'll be able to stay there. Yeah. Well, way to, way to jump to the end there. Well, I'm giving you my shot. On my opinion, you may disagree with me. Well, I, yeah. What do you, how, uh, how do you sorry. think we should do this? I guess I could like introduce the player. You give your thing, then I'll give my opinion. You'll give your opinion. We'll debate. I wanted to get it started, but okay. Next player. I like promise lead not- in. You do such a great job of like building up the topic. And then like the bubble's so big. And it's like, oh my God, I wonder what's going to happen. And then pop. Right before oh. I, but actually, that's just, I'm not, I'm not jealous. I think, uh, I think, anyway, this is great. This is great content, all of it. So you asked a question, Elon, that you did not answer 
in your prelude to, uh, to, to my part here, which is how often, how regularly does a rookie in the NHL score at a point per game pace? So I just did a quick search on Hockey Reference's play index for any rookie who played more than 50 games in a season and had a point per game pace over or more over those 50 games. So Matt Barzel in 27-18, the last player to do it was Evgeny Malkin in 06-07, the year oh, wow. before Ovechkin and Crosby both did it in 05-06. Do you want to know who the last person to do it before Crosby and Ovechkin was? I'll give you a hint. 13 years earlier. Oh, wow. Okay, so first of all, let's just point out that this is a really elite company. I didn't even expect it to be that elite company. You're saying Barzil and then Malkin, Crosby, and Ovechkin. And then we're going 13 years earlier. So this is like around the time when like you and I were like really core new hockey fans, right? It's around NHL 94 times. So we're trying to think who was a rookie. Like, are we talking like Timu Solani, like this type of guy? Or maybe we're, no, maybe I'm going too far back. No, that's exactly it. Timu Solani and actually three other guys did it that year. Solani... Lindros, Joey Juno, and Alexander Zhamnov. Man, 92-93 was such a great year for hockey, right until the Leafs got eliminated by LA in the semifinals. Or right up until the point where Montreal won in the finals. I was actually going to say, when I said Zhamnov, I was going to say for the Chicago Blackhawks, but I forgot that he started his career with the Jets and honestly, like he and Solani, I don't, I don't have the info right in front of me, but they must have been playing together, right? Let's do a deep dive into who <laughs> was the player who helped the other player between Timo Solani and Jamnov in the Jets' 92-93 season. I think it's important. And for then us to figure this we out. can go to uh, to like 1996 through I don't know 1999 and see who was the real driver in Chicago between uh, Jamnov, uh, Tony Amante, and Jeremy Roenick. I mean, I feel like it must have been Jeremy Roenick, right? Like, he's the most famous name out of that list. I guess Tony Amante also. Anyways, Brian, how about we talk about Barzil and his amazing rookie season, which put him in the company of all of these all-stars. And no, we're not talking about Tony Amante and Jeremy Roenick. We're talking about guys like Malkin and Crosby. It was a great year, but we don't know if he's going to be playing with Tavares. But he wasn't even playing with Tavares at even straight. No. Unless you're going to tell me that it was all because of the power play, which I don't think it was. And I'm also not going to tell you that it was all because, well, all the other teams only focused on John Tavares. So Barzil was able to roam free at even strength. I mean, Barzil may have benefited from being a, a slightly sheltered second liner, but I wouldn't say that contributed in any large part to him having such an amazing season. That would be taking too much away from him. You could also mention like Jordan Eberle proved to be a fantastic line mate for Barzold as well. So that worked out too, but Barzold deserve, deserves a lot of credit. And we've already put him in great company with all these other, like all the other rookies to be point per game in their rookie seasons. Way to go, Matt Barzold, for joining that club. One thing, I'm going to throw something new out there because I think we're, we're all pretty much in agreement that he is a fantastic hockey player. One thing that even the most fervent Matt Barzell supporters may miss out on appreciating is how great he was this year at entering the attack zone with controlled entry, with control of the puck. Barzell would zoom up the ice straight at a defender and then just zip around them like he'd head towards the boards and just sneak around them. Uh, and then have a clear shot at the net or making a pass to a teammate. There's some really great video examples of this in a Justin Bourne article over at The Athletic, as well as some more statistical support for Matt Barzell's controlled zone entries over at Lighthouse Hockey, where they actually use data from Corey Snyder's tracking project to prove the point. So a lot of of things for you to go check out if you're interested in. Corey Snyder is a Patreon, by the way. We support it. You can too. 
shutdown so, line on Twitter. So we've got a lot of homework for our listeners, it sounds like. Yeah, I love giving homework. Uh, anyway, Matt Barzell entering the zone with control, also a reason. There was a point of the season where people were like, God, too many of Matt Barzell's assists were secondary assists, and we don't know what that means. Uh, so by the end of the season, only 15 of Barzell's 38 assists at even strength were secondary. Uh, so first of all, that's not even a bad ratio. That's pretty good. But second of all, uh, I've seen some really great arguments written that Barzell deserves the secondary assist. We, just for context, for anyone not familiar with the primary secondary conversation, sometimes the secondary assist is considered noise. Like you might have touched the puck like a minute ago, or you could have even like, you know, passed the puck and then gone on a line change and 30 seconds later a goal is scored and you get credit even though you had little to do. Like sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time for a secondary assist. But Matt Barzell's secondaries can't fall into that category. He deserves every bit of secondary credit he gets for goals because he's often made the whole thing possible by carrying the puck up the ice over the blue line and, you know, just creating any opportunity for his team to score. As for uh, the usual markers of variance that we look at and how they looked for Mar- for Matt Barzell, I'm not seeing any red flags there. His IPP and on-ice sh- shooting percentage are both, like, they're high. But if he actually is a legit star player, they're not unreasonable numbers to stick. So we're going to need to see another year from Barzell to get a more colored-in picture of what he's capable of if he can keep up these high elite-level IPP and shooting percentages, or I should say on ice shooting percentages. Um, Although that's not, I I should have just stuck with IBP there in that sentence. Okay. What am I trying to say? I'm not at all counting Matt Barzell out of doing what he did this year again, next year. Anyone who saw him play would have to agree that he was incredible. Like you just needed to watch him to see he's creating his own chances, not overly relying on anyone or anything else for scoring opportunities. The questions about Matt Barzell going into next year will be, How is he affected by John Tafari's being in or out of an Islanders uniform next season? And then the second question is, going into 1819, there's going to be a book on Matt Barzell for other teams to read that they didn't have before. And is that going to be enough for other teams to get around to slowing him down somehow? So he's going to have a little bit more to overcome in his sophomore season now that teams know what he likes to do. They know his tendencies. Can he work through that? Interesting. Okay, but you're saying Barzell probably staying in the 70-point club. I have one reason that makes me a little concerned, but I'm curious to know if you think this is just a stupid reason. Okay. Okay, like, so he had three five-point games this season, which was, like, I think of some record for a rookie, probably. I think I heard it at the time. Like, So there's a 7-6 win over Detroit, where he had five assists. There was a 7-2 win over the Rangers, where he had two goals and three assists. And then earlier on in the year, there was a five-assist game against Colorado. I feel like probably he's not going to have three five-point games again next year. That seems rare. And, like, even if, let's say, I don't want to just take them away. Let's say he just got one point in each of those three games, which is, like, basically his season point pace, right? Point per game. If you just make all of those games have one point, now all of a sudden we have 12 less points on the year and then he would only have 73 points instead of 85 points so i don't know maybe i'm getting kind of silly because also if you take a look at his game log it's kind of fun to look at it like the first five six game five games of the year he had no points so i guess he was really easing into the lineup or or whatever i don't know for whatever reason he didn't have any points in his first five games i imagine that won't happen again so maybe these kind of balance each other out anyways that was just the one thing that came to my mind 
kind of reminds me of like Alex Dabrinkit, who had three hat tricks last year. And I feel like when you're looking at his total points, like it's pretty decent for a rookie. Obviously, nothing compared to Barzil, but it's like you don't think he's going to get three hat tricks again next year. So I wonder if you take those out, all of a sudden, what do you have? So I don't know. Is that something worth looking at, or am I just kind of like you know whatever? He this is the number of points he got. Uh, doesn't matter if he got them in clumps or if he got them you know all spread out. It seems intuitive to see those big bursts and think how like how many more times we talked about at the time, how rare those feats were. And I think Malkin was the guy who had similar numbers of five point games again. Yeah, you've totally caught me off guard here. It seems intuitive that if a player's production is like spiking several times in the year in one game samples that we can't count on him to get all these five point games again. But I still like don't want to take anything away from him. So yeah, I, like, I, it's a good question. This is a good question to research further. Yeah, just keep that in mind that when you have Matt Barzel next year, he's probably going to be really valuable on your team. Like I said about these other guys, but maybe you shouldn't expect as many five point games, especially like you said. If well, we'll have to see what happens with John Tavares. But obviously, if teams are focusing more on Tavar- on like Barzel's line, maybe that has an effect. Okay, Josh Bailey. Then, like I said, he had seventy one points last year. Uh, his career high before that was the year before with 56 points. That was the year when he finally got on the line with John Tavares. And clearly we saw that Josh Bailey could be a really great wingman. But the question is, even if John Tavares stays, maybe for this thought experiment, we have to do that. Or if he just plays with Barzil, and we assume that Barzil is just as useful to Bailey as Tavares was. Like, can Bailey do this again? Or do you think that, like, I think there's no even, if you say he's not in the 70 point club, like, is he worth drafting even? Like, I feel like Bailey's reputation is, is still not that high, even though he had this amazing year. Like, I don't know if I could see myself drafting him aside from like, you know, in a late round of my draft, like I'd be nervous. That seems like a stretch. I I feel like if your pool is reasonably deep, Josh Bailey is going to be drafted just by virtue of the fact that he's on the top power play and he plays with either Barzil or Tavares at even strength. This is assuming Tavares is back next year. Uh, So let's see exactly how he finally broke the 70-point threshold last season, though. The first number that stands out is a high IPP, a number we've been using all episode. And you might have heard this spiel before, but just in case you haven't, IPP means what percentage of goals that the player reg- goals scored while they're on the ice that a player registers a point on. Um, so Josh Bailey's was up at 74%, which is where you'd expect to find a high-end hockey player. But I don't think Josh Bailey qualifies as a high-end hockey player. And at 29 years old in October, I also think we've seen enough to feel comfortable in knowing that Josh Bailey is not a high-end guy and that he's also not about to break into one either. It's like he's in this place in his career where we, I I feel like we know what we're getting from him and we know he's not about to shoot up or bust out. Uh, The biggest reason for Josh Bailey putting up his career high point total and pace can be found in his power play numbers, which show what appears to be an odd quirk. Check out this, Elon. In 2016-17, in a power play one role, uh, top unit role, playing 227 total minutes on the power play, Josh Bailey had three goals and nine assists and 12 points. In 2017-18, in a top unit power play role, playing 228 total minutes on the power play, Josh Bailey had five goals and 26 assists for 31 <laughs> points. That's 19 more points on the power play, playing only one minute more with the man advantage and still playing with essentially, well, not the same top unit because Matt Barzel was there, but in the same role on the top unit. Yeah, so well, why? Uh, maybe Matt Barzel's really that big a difference maker. Yeah, maybe he is that big of a difference maker, or maybe the Islanders' power play uh, wasn't 
supposed to be this good. They did boast the sixth ranked power play in the league. So higher than Colorado's with a 23% man of advantage efficiency. But again, I'm going to turn to expected goals for, Uh-oh. and they were actually a bottom half team in the league, not way deep buried in the bottom half. Like it wasn't like Colorado with the swing from eighth in, uh, in power play conversion to 30th in expected goals for per 60. Uh, the Islanders are more like sixth to, I, I don't, I didn't grab the exact number, but 16th or 17th. So not as precipitous a fall. Uh, the Islanders were helped to their space, their spot in power play efficiency rankings by having the fourth best power play shooting percentage in the league that helped float them up towards the top of the heap. Uh, the question is going back to Josh Bailey, how did this affect him? Well, it shows quite plainly in Josh Bailey's power play on ice shooting percentage, which was at 17% this year, and that's six points higher than it's ever been before. Uh, Though, to Bailey's credit, he was more involved than ever on the power play, more opportunities to shoot, putting more pucks on net, but not to the extent that I expect he can repeat the feat of 31 power play points. I'm also going to dock Josh Bailey points for an individual even strength shooting percentage that was 25% higher than it had been for three of the four seasons prior. So he was up at about in the in the mid-10s at even strength this year in his own shooting percentage compared to being in the mid-7s in three of the last four seasons. And this is why I'm much more comfortable with Josh Bailey in the 60-point range than the 70-point range. And I don't mean like between 60 and 70 points. I'm just saying like 60 points for Josh Bailey. Yeah, I don't know. I might even go lower than that. So this might be a fun bet we can make. What was well, the bet we made? We might even draft him. Yeah, well, you. what was our bet on the Patriots? You thought that Sebastian Ajo is going to be better than Jack Eichel. So that's our first bet that we have going for well, next year. Yeah, I, you're going you're gonna to nail me to that one. I mean, you, you said it pretty confidently. By the way, check it out, by the way, if anyone wants to. Our patron cast was really fun last week. Evergreen, we answered some questions that are about next season, so it's not like it's out of date or anything. But yeah, uh, there's that one. And now I'd definitely be willing to take a under on 60 points for Josh Bailey next year if you want to make that bet. No, I, I'll go over 55. Deal. Okay. Okay, done. Hey, that would be fine for me for every year aside from last year. Oh, no, Bailey had 56 points uh, last season, so I would have barely lost with that. But I don't know. Another thing that concerns me about Bailey, he only had nine points in 21 games to end the season from February 16th on. I guess it was a Braden Holpe syndrome, right? Like someone who maybe you had and was decent for you all season long. Bailey was even like a superstar all season long or for a really long stretch there and then totally blew it for his owners in the fantasy playoffs. But I don't know what that's worth because that just maybe just goes to show how amazing he was before the end of the season. But just he didn't he didn't come through when he when he needed to. So maybe that means that you could get him for good value if you agree with Brian that he's going to be a sixty point guy. Maybe people who had him last year won't be willing to go with him again just because he burned them when they needed him most. Uh, and then again, we're probably going to talk about him when John Tavares finally signs with the Islanders or not. I guess if he signs with the Islanders, then we're good. It's more if John Tavares leaves the Islanders and if they don't sign anyone else, then we'll have to reassess what we think about all of these guys. So I think that's good for our Islanders talk. Brian, we still have one more team that has a pair of guys who joined the 70-point club for the first time. One of them should have been there, but could never stay healthy, and he finally did. And that is, of course, Alex Barkov on the Florida Panthers 78 points in 79 games last year. Unbelievable season for him. And we knew he had it in him, right? He had 52 points in 61 games last season, like the one before last season, I mean. And then he had 59 points in 66 games in 2015-16. So Barkov's been hovering around like a 75-point guy for the past few years. Couldn't stay healthy. Finally, last year, you probably got him at great value in your drafts because people probably thought he was injury-prone and he was able to play 
79 games, only missed three games and got points or had a pace of getting points in pretty much all of them, right? 78 points in 79 games. An amazing season for Alex Barkov. Can we say now moving forward that he's healthy, like injuries are behind him? Like, do you still have any injury concerns for Alex Barkov? Or do you think now you could draft with confidence now that he's played a full season and we can move forward? Like, I guess like Steven Stamkos also, right? He was like injury prone. People were worried about him. Now that he's played a full year, I guess you could say the same thing about Malkin, right? Like these guys who've been injured for a long time and then finally played a year without injuries. Is that enough for you to not even worry about it? Or do you, would it still be a concern for you going into next year? Or maybe it was never a concern for you. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of people ready to call Alexander Barkov a bar, uh, Barkov boy, a Band-Aid boy. Going well, into this it year. almost was turning into you can call it a Barkov boy the way he was getting injured every year. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, I, the fact that he's been injured so frequently obscures the fact that Barkov has been uh, a 68-plus point guy for three years now. So him finally uh, breaching 70 points is not a surprise. And what's even better about his season, which is uh, not something we've been able to say about any of the players we've discussed so far on tonight's show, is that there are actually markers of unkind variants for Alexander Barkov. So all the guys before I've said, well, this is a little high. That's a little high. I can't say that for anything in Alex Barkov's underlying numbers. Alex Barkov actually had the lowest shooting percentage this past year since his rookie season, his lowest IPP since his sophomore season. Like none of these were crazy drops. I don't want to overblow that, you know, he was way down there in these variants, like really getting bad luck or bad bounces. But it's a lot nicer to see a great producer be below where he should be, even by a little bit in these numbers, rather than above and then be concerned that he's overachieving. Uh, Barkov also put up the best shot, shot attempt and scoring chance generation of his career to boot. And it's important to like, this isn't a surprise because the guy's still growing. He's 22 years old. He's turning 23 in September. So he's got a great three, four years ahead of him, probably a great 10 years ahead of him. I was never on the fence about Alex Barkov. And now you have no reason to be either. Yeah, he's amazing. I feel like you take a look at someone like Nathan McKinnon, who's going to get drafted in the first round of your pool. And I'm not saying I'd rather have Barkov than McKinnon, but I will say that I think it's closer than a lot of people think. And I would definitely rather get Barkov at like 30th overall rather than McKinnon, you know, like fifth overall. So that's what I was saying about maybe I won't see myself drafting McKinnon, but I definitely could see myself drafting Barkov if people are still worried about his injuries or maybe, I don't know, it just wasn't as flashy of a season. Like I just feel like people didn't really talk that much about Barkov. He was so good. Florida like had a really amazing first line with him and Huberdo and Dadanov. And then I guess they just wanted to spread things around. They knew that Barkov could carry the load. He didn't even need Huberdo there. They put Nick Bjugstad there, who hasn't been fantasy relevant since forever. All of a sudden, Bjugstad became one of my fantasy playoff MVPs playing on the top line with Barkov. That's like how good Barkov is, that he's able to just make anyone, it seems, become a really amazing guy you want on your team just because he's playing with him. That's like a Crosby type thing that we talk about. I'm sure McKinnon is the same way. I definitely don't mean to say anything bad about Nathan McKinnon, but Barkov is so amazing. One guy who didn't play with him, again, just like Barzil and Bailey, or just like, uh, or no, I guess that's it for the players we're talking about. But another guy who didn't play with him on even strength, but did play with him on the power plays, Vincent Trocek, who also had a career year. Trocek, was amazing. He had 75 points in 82 games, his first time joining the 70-point club, because you need to have done that in order to be mentioned on this show. So yes, Vincent Trocek, amazing season. Also worth noting that he had 287 shots 
last season, which was fantastic. His previous high for that was 230 the year before. So a huge shot taker, which is super valuable in fantasy. 44 goals. So of those 75 points, 44 of them were goals. Just an amazing season. His previous high in points overall was 54. Last year, 75. I don't know how many more ways I could say this, except to say Vincent Trocek was so valuable in a lot of leagues. And do you see any reason to expect him to slow down? Or do you think that was like a sustainable thing that we could see again next year? Because he's not that old either, right? He's also a young guy. He is a young guy, even though Vincent Trocek, like the name itself in a vacuum brings to mind someone, I don't know, like mid to late 30s. Uh, he turns 25 in July. <laughs> Wait, why? So, why I don't that... know, Vincent? Just like it's an old person name? Yeah. How many young guys? Like I know Vince McMahon Jr. and Vince McMahon <laughs> Sr. is even older. I don't know. I think of like Vincent Chase from Entourage. He always seemed like a young guy. Well, how old is he now? Well, now he's probably uh, a lot older than Vincent Trocek. There you go. He's also a fictional character. Vince Vince Staples, the rapper. (laughs) I mean, it's like asking how old is Maggie on The Simpsons, right? Like, I guess you'd assume she's older, but then if you watch an episode, she's not. So that's different. That's a cartoon. Characters don't age in cartoons the way they do in in like what do you call them? Real life shows. shows? (laughs) What about Richard Alpert on Lost? He didn't age. I don't know who that is. <laughs> okay, someone gets what I'm talking about. <laughs> but okay, Vincent Trocek, not in his 30s. He's in his or like mid-20s, and he's emerging as a superstar, right? I know Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Okay. Vincent Sorry. Trocek. <laughs> <laughs> Vincent Trocek. Uh, Vincent Trocek, how about this? His even strength numbers in 17-18 were ridiculously consistent with the numbers he put up in 16, 17, and they've been good numbers. Like we've been talking about him since the 16, 17 season, maybe even a little bit before that. Um, so consistent that over 82 games, Vincent Trocek played only 102 seconds less than he did the year before. So like, just think of how, I don't know. I find, I, I find some weird pleasure in just seeing how identical his two seasons look. Uh, of course, there's one big difference between the last two seasons. Elon, did you cite his point totals already? Just so I'm not talking about this without context. Yeah, I did cite that he had a career high and joined the 70-point club with 75 points. last The previous year, he had 54. I'm going to guess the big difference is his shots on goal? Is that the thing that no. you're saying is the big difference? No, it's not, actually, what I'm going to say is the big difference. Although he did set a career high with 287 shots, um, which is great. Lasted 60 more than he had the season before. He shot about the same shooting percentage, so that helped him. No, the biggest thing that helped Vincent Trocek this year was his newfound deployment on the top power play unit. He wasn't Don't on the top power play? That? He wasn't. I think he was on the top power play the year before also, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. He was only seeing uh, 49% share of his team's power play minutes. And his most common line mates on the power play were oh. Nick Bugstad, UC Jokinen, and Riley Smith. Uh, he also saw some time with Vonick and Yager. Yes, uh, it's all coming back to me, Brian, because Jonathan Marcheseau was on the top power play. Yes. With... With Barkov and with Huberdo. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Marshall. It all comes back to Marshall. <laughs> so, um, so what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So he went from a 49% share of his team's power play minutes, which he'd also seen in 15-16, up to a 68% timeshare, which, if you want to know what that comes out to in seconds, an extra 45 seconds of power play time per game, uh, an extra 60 minutes total of ice time per game, and the thing that he did on that power play, which might surprise you, Elon, Vincent Trocek was the most prolific shooter and shot attempter 
on that top power play unit. He attempted more shots per 60 minutes and took more shots on goal than anybody else on that unit. In fact, he was ahead, uh, reasonably ahead of all the other uh, forwards on the unit. The guys closest to him were Ekblad and Yandel. Um, Trocek, it's nice to have them in his have that in his portfolio because he's been one of the best second line performers now for a couple years. And getting onto that top power play makes him like a version of Matt Barzel, right? Not saying he's as naturally talented or quite as good, but he's a second line player who steps onto the top power play and crushes it in both roles. Something nice about Trocek, which is actually the same about Barkov, is that uh, he had half his recent shooting percentages at even strength. So you could have probably added a couple more points onto his totals. And as we said, uh, Trocek still has room to grow. He's not about to decline, not dropping off. He'll be 25 for the next season. So I see him as if he can hold down this top power play deployment, uh, he's got a great shot at hitting 70 again. Yeah, and I don't see why he won't, right? Like now that Marcheseau's not in the picture, you've got Barkov, Huberdo, Dadanov, Trocek, and a defenseman. I don't see why Florida's going to go 2D. I don't expect like Dennis Malgin or someone to take that spot. Like I guess it's obviously possible and we'll see what happens, but I wonder if someone else gets bumped before Trocek after the amazing year he had. Yeah, so you're concerned with anyone on Florida, except I'm going to go ahead and say Barkov is essentially immune because he's good enough to not have to care. Is that... Florida does not seem to know exactly what they're doing these days or to know what they're doing and not care at all. So like if that impacts, if their ability to build a team impacts how Trocek is deployed or what's happening around him, uh, that that could work against him. But I think he's probably good enough. And like Florida in, in terms of just the roles he'll be asked to play, things will be stable enough around him for that to work. I don't know what they're going to do on the power play though. Remember how uh, Rodim Verbata was on Florida last year? That didn't work out too well. And also, do you remember that Frank Vetrano got traded to them at the end of the year? He's someone that we used to think was going to make an impact on Boston. I wonder if maybe Vetrano could be someone who could make an impact at some point. Actually, I do recall that a patron, one of our patrons suggested that this guy Henrik Borgstrom might be a potential Calder candidate next year. So I wonder if he could either, I think I wouldn't be concerned about Trocek being bumped by someone like Henrik Borgstrom. Maybe he could help, you know, add some more depth to the team. We'll see. We'll see. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who Henrik Borgstrom is. We'll definitely talk about him at some point (laughs) later on, because now I've seen his name and I've heard his name a bunch of times and we'll get Cameron Robinson on and we'll talk about Henrik Borgstrom and maybe some other people. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about the next player now is Sean Couturier, another player who came out of nowhere. He's, I guess, like a Josh Bailey type, right? Like no one going into the season expected Sean Couturier to come anywhere close to 70 points. He was insane right from the start. As soon as he got on the top line with Giroux and with, I guess it wasn't connecting at first. It was like Giroux and Voracek, I think, at the start of the season with Couturier. But anyway, and then like things got even better for him partway through. I'm talking about Couturier because he got on the top power play at some point. And then like the rest was gangbusters. He ends the season with 76 points in 82 games. Was like amazing, like reliable all the way through. His previous high was 39 points. Like Couturier never even came close. And also like Couturier is a guy like Barkov who had been injured a lot in the previous two years. So he's another guy that finally was able to play a full season. Last year was, I guess, pretty healthy overall, at least for the players that we had seen as being concerns for being able to stay healthy in terms of like really valuable guys in fantasy. Couturier was healthy. I'm not too worried about that for him moving forward. 
do I'm assuming he's going to stay on the top line. It worked so well for them. They moved Giroud to the wing. Why would they move Giroud back now when Couturier was so good? I don't know. I just feel like Couturier is probably there to stay. I guess that's my take right now. I know, Brian, you don't like me giving my takes too quickly. but uh, <laughs> I you love think? your takes. I, mean, I, what I wish you would give your takes before you even ask the questions. Okay, the next player, I'm going to say my take before I even say the player's name. I love that. Okay. Uh, so what's your take on Couturier? Couturier, though, right? Yeah, is he going to stay in the 70-point club? I'm thinking yes. For as long as Giroux is around and great, at least, you know, in Voracek, like at some point, it might be tough for Couturier if all these older players on Philly start to decline. But for now, I feel like he's in a really great spot, and I don't see any reason to be afraid of him getting bumped. I guess you could say Nolan Patrick's going to bump him, but just like it worked out so well. Like, And he's he's always been a really good player. Like I hear on other podcasts that look into, you know, like the underlying numbers of Couturier has always been one of those really great two-way players, like really reliable defensively, and they never really gave him a chance to produce offensively like I feel like the reason why he got all these points is not because all of a sudden he had some hidden talent that no one knew about or I guess that is what it is right like it's it's just that he finally got deployed in an offensive way and he showed what he can do I guess similar to someone like uh, Marcius or William Carlson and yeah I just I'm really high on Sean Couturier like all season long it seemed like I just really regretted having dropped him early like I remember I picked him up as a free agent uh, early on in the season the cup fault keeping Carlos Alton Pedro Fantasy League and then I dropped him like two games later and then obviously I never had a chance to get him again but I, I won so who cares congratulations on winning now nobody cares about anything that happened in that league except you you still care I'm actually wearing my shirt that I earned by winning the league right for now. anybody I- listening Elon is standing up so the camera can see that part of his shirt that That's- proves that he's wearing said shirt Winners of the couple got a special Keeping Carlson shirt where Carlson's hair is made of gold. It's very fancy. It's very elite. So you said a couple things, Elon, in, in, in talking about Sean Couturier, where you said where you're taking them is sort of givens, where I'm saying I'm not sure it's a given. Uh, the first thing is that you mentioned how he had a huge boost in deployment, and that's true. Uh, he had an extra three minutes of ice game over the year before, an extra one and a half minutes of those coming on the power play. And he got an upgrade of to playing with Claude Giroux and Travis Konechny rather than Konech- rookie Konechny and Jacob Voracek or even Dale Weiss and Braden Shen in 16-17. Uh, whether this deployment stays, though, Elon, I would like to think it will. It seems reasonable to think it will. The biggest thing working against Couturier is that he's a really great hockey player. I'm almost fearful that he gets a bit of a Paul Stasny edit where he's I knew so you good. Were gonna, as soon as you said he's a really great player, is your concern? <laughs> I knew the name Paul Stasny was coming. He's so useful as both an offensive and defensive player that if they need Couturier to helm another line, if they're only getting production, like if they want to spread out the offense or spread out the defense, he is going to be one of the guys, one of the tools that they want to use who gets moved away from being deployed with the best offensive players to try and create some sort of secondary scoring slash shutdown line. So that's that's the concern that he has to face in terms of deployment. In terms of actually scoring, uh, if he continues to get the same deployment, he had a super high, like I've mentioned a lot of high on ice shooting percentages on this show. His was over 11%, which is like stupid high. It does not get much higher than that. And the concerning piece is that Couturier's rate stats didn't actually rise 
over last year. So on one hand, you can say, well, some of the percentages were friendly and that's what makes it scary. But it also just makes sense that he got better because he held the same amount of rate stats in more minutes to make magic happen. And of course, more power play minutes to make magic happen. I'm going back and forth between what was good and what was bad about his season last year. But now I'll touch on what you said about Giroux, Elon. Like you said, as long as he keeps playing with Giroux, who's probably going to have another great season next year. I'm not there. I have long, long boosted Claude Giroux, especially over the last two years before this one, where it was not nice for anyone who owned him. He was leaving him hanging. Uh, don't forget, in 16-17, 58 points. Uh, the year before, 67 points, which is pretty good, but it was his lowest total uh, since uh, his sophomore season, where he had 47 points back in 2009-2010. And I had long gone on and saying, Claude Giroux is better than this. Like, don't worry, 67 points in 78 games. He's still a point-per-game guy. 58 points in 82 games. Don't worry, he's going to bounce back. I, because he had low shooting percentages, we went really deep into it for like two years, but Giroux and Voracek. Anyway, even me uh, just waiting and waiting for Giroux to rebound and regain his form, did not expect him to be setting a career high in his age 30 season. Not only was it a career high with 101 points, it was a career points per game high uh, by, uh, well, actually just barely, but definitely the high watermark. He has two seasons where he's scoring about one and a quarter points per game. The next highest mark was just over one point per game. And then, of course, the rest are lower. Um, He had a crazy high shooting percentage. He had an 18% shooting percentage, which is also a career high. So I don't know that he can quite keep up 101-point pace in 82 games. I'll still give him 75 or 80. Like, I still think he's a really great player. But that will adversely affect Sean Couturier's numbers, especially if it sort of sends the team, uh, not tailspinning, but it sends coaching staff uh, grasping at straws to try what's wrong with Claude Giroux and trying to like shift the lineup, blend things all the time, try to get him going, quote unquote, when it really just might be that Claude Giroux uh, is going to be uh, turning 31 in January. He's another year older. I do believe he's in decline. And I think anybody banking on him scoring 101 points and thereby Sean Couturier easily getting 75 points again, uh, that's not going to be how Sean Couturier gets his 75 points. And in fact, well, first off, I'd like to apologize for butchering his last name. It's hard to say while I'm speaking so quickly. Uh, but second, I'm actually a little, I'm a little surprised at how skeptical I am after doing some research that Sean Couturier can match his point total again. Well, he doesn't have to match it, right? For this exercise, we're saying, or asking if he's going to stay in the 70 point club. Yeah. So you said 75, you don't think so. What about 70? Like, like, where do you see him landing like for next year? And I guess for the next couple of years? I think I'd want to draft him as as a mid to high 60 point player just because we don't know where he's going to land in the lineup. We don't know how many great years Giroux and Voracek have left. Uh, so that's that those are my points for skepticism. I think he's certainly he's definitely capable. Like he's more capable than Josh Bailey for getting 70 points. Yeah, I guess for Couturier you might be able to get him there cuz I feel like a lot of people might overlook you know or just might think like okay he had one good season and then the year before he had 39 points so you know like it might be hard for other people to accept that he's now in the 70 point club so maybe if you're drafting him as like a high 60s guy that might be enough to get him and hopefully he'll come through for you and then there's clearly upside for more like we saw this year I think you're right you've convinced me maybe I'm not so super confident that he's going to be in the 70 point club for sure but I would 
take the over on 70 if you wanted to bet on it, but I wouldn't be like super confident. Like maybe I'd be like 55% confident or something like that, if that makes sense. I think we're probably both 55% confident. If if I take that bet, I would also, I'll take the under, but also 55% confident. I'm writing it down. You're writing it down. So we're going over, under, Couturier, 70 points, pace. All these bets are pace, right? We're not going to let injuries ruin a good bet here. No. Okay. So next let's go to Dallas. We had Alex Radulov, who... I don't know. It was kind of quiet, right? 72 points in 82 games. His first time ever passing 70 points. Of course, he's had a bit of a strange career. He's 31 years old now. He had 54 points last year with the Canadians when he first came from the KHL. And then his next highest season was 58 points with Nashville way back in 2007 and 2008. And of course, all those years in between, he was playing in Russia, came back a couple of years ago, 54th Montreal, like I said, now 72 points last year. And now we go into next year. He spent a lot of the year playing with Ben and Sagan. Of course, Dallas did their Dallas thing, and they mixed the lines up a whole bunch all throughout the year. But at least on the power play, Radulov was out there with the two superstars. And also, at even strength, a lot of the time, Radulov was with like at least one of them, if not sometimes both of them. So I don't really have a reason to expect them to change things next year. I mean, I guess one reason to expect them to change things next year is that they sucked, and they didn't make the playoffs again. <laughs> Maybe they might want to shake things up. I don't know what other options they really have. Yeah. yeah, so I feel like Radulov should be able to, you know, at least have really good deployment. That said, he's also, like you said about Giroux, you know, being in his early 30s, so is Radulov. So, you know, he just barely got 72 last year. When you look at his numbers, was that like a sustainable pace or do you see any reason to expect him to not be able to do it again? The key word for Alex Radulov last year is more. He had more minutes than he did the year before in Montreal. Two more minutes total per game, uh, 30 more seconds of power play time per game. Uh, He had more shots uh, compare 217 shots on goal with Dallas to 147 shots with Montreal. And he also had more goals. Uh, He kept his shooting percentage incredibly steady, 12.2% in 16-17, 12.4% the next year. But he got nine more goals just by virtue of taking 70 more shots. So that's fantastic if he can keep that up. He also had more elite line mates in Dallas. Ben and Sagan is a fantastic pair to be playing with. In Montreal, he was playing with Pacioretty, who's great, uh, but also Philip Dano, who is, I think it's fair to say, not great. Even, Even the most excited, enthusiastic Philip Dano fans aren't going to fight me on saying he's not great, right? I mean, he's no better, you know, Tyler Sagan or Jamie Ben. I think Phil Dano is fine. Is that is that a good adjective? Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> okay, uh, where else? Let's talk about what Radulov did on the power play. He was able to, I actually think he had he might have had room for growth here. He only had one more power play goal over his time in Montreal, but he was shooting the puck a lot more. He was a lot more involved as a trigger man. I'm not saying the trigger man on the power play, but compare his shots, his shot attempts per 60 rates between Montreal and Dallas. It's essentially half in Montreal, what it was in Dallas. And that translates into the exact same ratio for shots. He had five shots per 60 on the power play in Montreal, uh, almost 11 shots per 60 in Dallas last year that helped the scoring chances for it's like all his power play shot and chance generation numbers doubled in Dallas which bodes well he did end up with more power play points he had 23 power play points compared to 16 in Montreal Uh, I think he probably could score a few more goals though so I like as long as he can stick on that top line and like you said we never knew in Dallas and once again we don't know going into this season how often the blender is going to come out when you wonder how exactly the blender is going to come out. They're just 
like you said, Elon, aren't a lot of options to mix up the lines. It's like you can put these three together or you can just sync one of them with two anchors on another line. I guess what you're hoping for is Jason Spezza being a capable second line center who can play with one of the three guys on the top line and then they have two capable lines that way. In any case, as long as there's somewhere good for Radulov to play in the top six, I like him for another 70 points. Yeah. I think Brian needs time to give up Betza. Like he, or I guess we'll see if a new coaching staff makes yeah, a change. Hitchcock for him. hated Hitchcock hated Jason Spezza. Like he was unfairly treated and much maligned. So I'm yeah. not saying like he's a guarantee to return to 60 point form. I'm just saying I think he's he's still got more to offer than he was given the opportunity to offer last year. Okay, that's fair. You know I, Do you remember how good he was? I remember, but I also just know that there is a bit of a track record, Brian, where you sometimes, we discuss this, right? Sometimes you hang on to people a bit too long. I don't want that to happen yeah. with Spets. I don't want this to be another Hemsky or Semin or who was it? Jonas Hiller situation. Yeah, Hemsky, Hemsky, I did not hitch my wagon to, or did I? I don't remember now. For a while, you were like, oh, guess who's back on top line of Montreal, <laughs> Alex Hemsky. I was, but I was just watching him the whole time, wasn't I? I don't uh, know. <laughs> That's what I like to think in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, Jason Spezza has had an amazing career. Maybe he has a little bit more in him, but like, I wouldn't be drafting him at this point, but sure. Throw him on your watch list and see. And I like it. I mean, just when you look at the other options, Dallas, unless they do something crazy in the off season, you have to imagine Radulov's playing with Ben or Sagan and he's on the top power play and Dallas has to figure out a way to somehow be better. I guess just like always some better goaltending would probably help them, but we won't get into that on this episode. We talk a lot about goalies. Okay. A couple more guys who joined the 70 point club. One is, uh, I think, more obvious than the other. And so one is Patrick Laine. Just barely got there. 70 points in 82 games. 44 goals. The interesting thing is Laine had 70 points. Every single player we've talked about so far had more points than Laine, right? But... When you look at our patron rankings, so every day the patrons are voting on just uh, rankings. We add a new player to the ranking every day. We're up to like 40 players now, ranking the players' value for next year. Patrick Laine landed 12th on our list. I think the only player that landed higher than Patrick Laine that we've talked about so far is Nathan McKinnon. Like guys like uh, Barkov and Trocek and, uh, you know, Barzo, like they all fell below Laine in the rankings. I guess probably a lot of that is because Line of those 70 points, 44 of them were goals, and goals in fantasy are generally more valuable than assists. Also, he's Patrick Line, right? He just like has this amazing pedigree. Everyone loves him. Everyone thinks he's going to be the next Ovechkin. But I'm curious to know, like, I think like it's fair to say he's probably going to stick in the 70-point club. But like, how good is he? Like, do you see him as someone that deserves to be drafted 12th? Like, we're not talking keeper leagues here. Like, this ranking is for just a one-year league, how we think these players will rank for next year. Do you think Line A is a 12th overall pick at this point? I should point out that he also technically should have broken the 70-point pace, like joined the 70-point club in his rookie season. He had 64 points in 73 games, which would have been a 72-point pace if he didn't get injured. 70 points last year. Does he have more in him, or is he a 70-point guy? He's got more in him. I, the one thing you're looking for in Patrick Liney's numbers year over year, being as young as he is, being still a developing player, is growth. And there is growth in just about every offensive generation number from his rookie season to his sophomore season. Now, that doesn't mean like it's not a linear path where he's going to grow, 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 grow by an equal magnitude every season. But I still think there's room for growth, uh, if not just in his own rate stats, like if he can't up his, say, shots per 60 or shot attempts per 60 or high danger chances per 60, even if those stay static, he has room to grow in straight up just his ice time out of all the guys 
who've hit 70 points this year. Uh, he has to be. I pulled up a list to try and figure this out on the fly. He definitely has one of the lowest average times on ice, time on ices. Uh, he only played, Elon, can you guess how often, how, how much time he saw? Well, I guess from year? what you're saying, I guess I'll assume around 16, 17 points yeah, per, very uh, good uh, minutes per game. Very good. 16 and a half minutes of ice time per game. And yeah, that is the lowest number in the top uh, 37. The, the At 38 is Mitch Marner, who had 69 points, playing 16 minutes and 23 seconds per game. But the line is a fair bit ahead of him. And you look at other wingers. Well, first up, I looked at Austin Matthews, seeing as they went in the same draft year. He's playing just over 18 minutes. And then I found other like high-end wingers who have a great shot at scoring a lot of points. Taylor Hall, 19 minutes. Ovechkin, 20 minutes. Brad Marchand, 20 minutes. Uh, and then I found Johnny Goodrow, which I thought was a pretty decent comparable. Uh, he's up at 19 and a half minutes. And Lonnie actually saw a cut in his ice time between the last two years. Uh, in his rookie season, he actually played on average a minute and a half more per night. So an interesting step back in deployment, but step forward in point scoring, which seems to bode really, really well. Actually, it wasn't a step forward in point scoring. His points per game was down just a smidge. But like I said, all of his raid stats were up, which is super promising. This is like, this is a no-brainer, right, Elon? Patrick Liney. Yeah, I think we we could both agree. He's definitely a no-brainer for the 70-point club. And it seems to me like you're making a good case for why he should also be ranked super high, potentially a late first-round draft pick in a lot of fantasy drafts. Like, if you're saying that he was able to get 70 points playing, like, fewer minutes than everybody, then you'd imagine as he gets a little older, the coach will trust him more. Paul Maurice is going to play him a couple more minutes a game. Who knows? Then he all of a sudden becomes a point-per-game player, maybe a 50-goal scorer. We all expect it to happen. You're saying you're not seeing any red flags. So you're saying Patrick Lina is who everyone thinks he is. Not even worth discussing any further. And of course, Elon, the, the stat that will attest to Patrick Lina doing more with less is goals per 60 minutes is goal scoring is his forte. And he's right up there sixth in the league and goals per 60 minutes, five spots back of the league leader, William Carlson. <laughs> and uh, for some reason you have different opinions about these guys. Well, maybe not for some reason, eh, maybe William Carlson will change your mind next year. Okay. Last player to join the 70 point club last season that we haven't talked about yet is someone who we did not. I know for sure you did not expect him to be joining this club because after he got traded from Philly to St. Louis, you were saying that you don't see any reason for Braden Shen to improve on his previous career high of 59 points. And boy, did he prove you wrong because just like Patrick Laine, he just barely edged his way into the 70 point club. He had 70 points in 82 games. Of course, a lot of those points came early in the season when he was playing on the line with Jaden Schwartz and Vladimir Tarasenko. And then Schwartz got injured and then things got a little bit weird, but Shen was still a pretty reliable guy. And especially in a league that counts hits, by the way, he was super reliable and he landed with 70 points. Why were we so wrong? You, I recall so many discussions where we saw Dauber predicted that Shen was going to beat 70 and we were like, ah, we like Dauber a lot, but I don't know what he's doing with this projection. And we had all these reasons to think that there's no way he's going to be able to be better than like maybe a 60-point guy at best. And then he made us look dumb. What's the reason? How did this happen? Well, that's me not knowing how it happened, that long pause. I actually reached out to Dauber and asked him on Twitter, like, is this how you thought that Braden Chen would get his 70 points? Like, of course you were right in your projection here, but did it happen the way you thought it would? Or did it happen in another way? Like, why do you think 
he got to 70 points. And of course, I only asked him this like 58 minutes before episode started. So I can't blame him for not having gotten back to us. But we'll retreat or share on the next show. Um, I'm looking for reasons. The one that jumps out to me is that he said a career high in shots on goal. Like, so he's with 210 that only got him like three more goals though than the year before and two more goals than the year before that. So it didn't put him into any new goal scoring territory. He did like the bigger deal was that he set a career high in assists with 42 uh, over the last two years. His number were in Philadelphia. His numbers were 30 and 33. Um, no more, like no extra production on the power play. In fact, he had his lowest production year on the power play in the last three years compared to 28 points in 16, 17 when he was still with Philadelphia and 22 points the year before. So what did he do better? Like aside from taking a few more shots, I don't really know. And I also don't see a whole bunch of markers of unsustainability. Like his uh, on ice shooting percentage was reasonable in the 8% range. I should probably say more often when it's reasonable uh, just to, so people have a sense of what the actual number is. Anyway, his IPP was reasonable his offensive start percentage, like he was starting a lot more often in the offensive zone, but that shouldn't come out to a whole lot. One big difference is that he's his line was driving play more often than they were. And by that, I mean, they had a higher share of shot attempts while he was on the ice. So perhaps while he was on the ice, they spent, he, he was able to spend more time in the other team's attack zone than he had in the last couple of years or in any year in his career in Philadelphia. Um, his rate stats were like, sort of consistent with his career numbers like they weren't any new heights of course the year before in Philadelphia was not a good one Uh, the one number that really stands out where he definitely set a a better number in his rate stats was in his individual scoring chances for per 60 minutes he put that number up to eight when it had been uh, the best in his career was like in the low seven so good for him for doing that Otherwise, I feel like it was just getting to play with Vladimir Tarasenko instead of a struggling Giroux or a struggling Voracek. He actually had some line mates who were rolling with him and he was able to be along for the ride. And I'm not saying that he wasn't a big part and like he's not a talented player. I've long thought he's a talented player, but I was surprised to see him hit 70 points. If he plays all year again next year with Schwartz and Tarasenko, great. Like I, I think he's got a good shot at doing it again. Otherwise, I don't think so. I think he needs all of that to be able to get to 70. Yeah, I think that I will agree with you. He's 26 years old. So I think that people don't realize he's still pretty young. He's been around for a while. He's clearly like in his prime now and doing well. That said, there's reasons to like look on both sides. First of all, if you look at his splits before the All-Star game, he had 50 points in 51 games. And a lot of that came in November, 19 points in 12 games in November. He also had 11 points in 13 games in October. So for the first two months of the season, he was like well above a point per game. If you look at his production after the All-Star game, it falls to 20 points in 31 games, which wouldn't bring him anywhere close to the 70-point club. It would make him like, you know, fantasy relevant, but not too special. But a lot of that has to do with Jaden Schwartz being injured. And we talked about Vladimir Tarasenko before and how he was affected by that. So it's just so hard to make projections for next year because now Schwartz will be healthy. So you'd think maybe the good times could keep rolling. And obviously they were probably unsustainable for that stretch. But at the same time, if they could have a healthy line that sticks together the whole way, maybe throw in Fabry. I don't know. I mentioned him before. I don't know if Fabry's maybe over and I should get over him. But like, you know, a little more depth over there in St. Louis. I don't know. Could they re-sign Paul Stasny? Hopefully they could get someone in free agency to replace Paul Stasny who's gone. And like, I could 
could see him being close to 70 points again. I think I agree with you, Brian. Like everything's going to have to go right, but he's probably a mid 60s guy. And then, you know, it's a couple good games versus a couple bad games. We'll decide whether he makes it to 70 or sticks around 60, 65. My thoughts exactly. Did you remember to do the thing for Radulov where you gave your take before you said his name? I don't recall. Uh, Probably not. Sorry (laughs) about that, everybody. (laughs) And with that, we've covered all 12 new members of the 70-point club and discussed whether we think they'll stay there or whether we think they won't. Braden Chen, we were right on the fence with a lot of these guys and stuff. But yeah, tweet at us. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about these guys? Do you think we got any of them terribly wrong? Do you agree with us? At Keeping Carlson, we love to chat. If you're in our patron Facebook group, we'd love to also chat there. But we should chat more about the episodes after the over because we're giving you, we're throwing a lot of opinions at you. I'd like to know what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Let's discuss. But anyway, thank you for uh, tuning in to another Summer Series episode. I know that it, we're still very far away from our drafts, but now's the time. You know, and things are going to start ramping up soon, right? Now, I said on the last patron cast, it's like the most boring time of the season for fantasy. You know, the NHL playoffs are kind of winding down. We don't even have that many games left to talk about. And then things are going to heat up, though. Like, after the playoffs are done, we're going to get to the entry draft. There's going to be some trades. July 1st is going to come, free agency. We're going to have so much to talk about. And then, you know, a month after that, we're going to start you know, getting ready for projections that are going to be coming out. We're going to head into our drafts. Before you know it, we're going to need to be thinking about all these guys in our rankings. So I'm glad you've come with us for the ride to discuss them this early. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. That definitely helps us out. But with that, Brian, I will ramble no longer. So let's cue the outro music. And why don't you go ahead and read us those credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlton Hockey podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Corsica, Natural Stat Trick, Charting Hockey, HockeyGoalies.org, Hockey Reference, Hockey Biz, Hockey Database, Lead Prospects, Roto World, and Fantrack. Great job, as always, Brian. I'm looking forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks. By then, we'll know who's going to win the Stanley Cup. Quick, who's your pick? I'm taking Washington. Washington? No, I won't say it. I'm do- I'm done betting against Vegas. Like, since February, I've never said a bad word about them since then. And I'm just going to continue doing that until I'm sure it's safe. So you're picking Vegas? Um, or you're saying you just refuse I'm to not, choose? I'm not picking Vegas. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, talk to you guys then. And thanks again for listening. Bye. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sun. Great sign-off catchphrase. I love it. Bye.